Hello, Charter Folk. Jed here, charged up about today. Um, over the last few months, I have had several occasions where I've come into contact with Charter Folk who have pushed my thinking on some of the most challenging issues that we confront as a movement. And I've come away from several of those conversations thinking to myself, it would be so great if I could get those folk in front of other Charter Folk, right? Um, and maybe we could start a new discussion series on some of the most difficult challenges that our charter school movement faces right now. The first person I reached out to to see if they thought this might be a good idea was to Andy Rotherham, who is the co-founder uh, and the partner at Bellwether. And he's also the writer of Edgewonk, which is definitely a newsletter that I read every week. I asked Andy, what did he think? He thought this was a great idea. And he said that he would be willing to moderate the first discussion. So then we started talking about, well, what is really a tough issue right now that we should really be diving into more deeply? And both Andy and I coalesced around this notion of growth. What does growth mean in an era when there's so much need in the pandemic? What does growth mean in a moment of racial reckoning when organizations both want to keep growing, but they also want to turn internal and to make sure that they are doing as much as they can internally on these issues? What does it mean during an issue, a time of like massive blowback do we continue to push for growth, despite the fact that we are being targeted as we are? As we talked about this, we realized that there were some key folks that we would love to like pick their brains on this topic. And so we reached out to them. And I'll tell you, four ama uh, just amazing charter folks said they'd be eager to be a part of this conversation. We had Ana Ponce, who's the founder of Camino Nuevo in Los Angeles and is now leading great public schools now in Los Angeles. Brett Pizer is the CEO at Uncommon in New Jersey and New York and in Massachusetts. He said that he would be eager to be a part of this, as did Patricia Brantley, who is the CEO at Friendship uh, Public Schools in DC. And finally, John Armbrust, uh, the CEO at Austin Achieve, an organization that is growing very rapidly during this period. And so they came together, they had a phenomenal conversation moderated by Andy. I stayed completely out of it and just allow these five extraordinary charter folk uh, to, to dive into this topic. And so I hope that you enjoy uh, and learn from this conversation as much as, as I did. Uh, and also I'll just do a last plug for charter folk. All of these folks that are here are supporters of charter folk. Uh, subscribers. They're helping us grow our community even more. And I would love it if those of you who are viewing today might want to come and become subscribers as well so that our community can continue to grow. And so we can have even deeper conversations on all the issues that confront our movement, but certainly the most challenging ones. So thank you again for being here. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, I'm Andy Rotherham. I'm a co-founder and partner at Bellwether Education, and thank you, Jed, for setting this up and for that introduction. Uh, really happy to be here today with a, just a terrific uh, group of discussants to talk about a big question, charter growth, charter expansion, what's happening and so forth. Uh, a really timely question and, and, a, and a complicated one. Uh, I'm not telling anyone anything that they don't know to say that this is a very disrupted time in education, very fluid time, uh, a fair amount of friction around various issues and a time where charter schools are both leading the way and facing some of the same challenges that other public schools are facing. Uh, and so I'm joined by just a terrific group. They're gonna introduce themselves here and we'll bring them in in just a second to talk through some of these questions about what is happening with charter expansion? What should the North Star be? What should the direction that we're trying to, to move things? What are the challenges and, and why in this turbulent time are charters not growing more and faster? All right, Pat, Brett, 
John, Patricia, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I think this is going to be a terrific discussion. I'd ask you all to introduce yourselves both by, you know, where you are, the schools you're in, or on a, in your case, the school you used to lead, describe that, and then give the charter sector just right now an overall grade if you, if you, had, to, if you had to give it a letter grade. Uh, why don't we, we'll, we'll start, we, we, we can start wherever. Anna, why don't we start with you? Sure. Hi, everyone. Great to be part of this conversation. Ana Ponce. Uh, I am the former CEO of Camino Nuevo Charter Academy uh, Charter Network here in Los Angeles that was uh, geographically focused in uh, primarily immigrant Latino community, uh, pre-K, high school pipeline. Uh, we had uh, eight schools and uh, over 3,500 uh, students. Terrific, Patricia. Well, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Pat Brantley. I'm the CEO of Friendship Schools in Washington, DC. We are 15 campuses, 5,000 children strong, um, and we focus on ensuring kids have what they need to get to and through college. Uh, if I'm going to give the charter sector a grade, I'm gonna give it a B minus um, for what we're able to do, but that minus because I think we need to do so much more for children. I forgot the grade. Uh, come back to you. Yeah, go. I wasn't gonna let you. I wasn't gonna let you get away with that, but I was gonna come back. Go ahead. I I would definitely give it an A for effort. I've been in touch with a lot of my colleagues, and you know it's a difficult time. But definitely, we need to differentiate between what what um, the effort that's being put forward, the the commitment to kids and families. And you know, sort of what um, what we're giving. So uh, I would also, just in terms of the the instructional aspect, the services, I would give it a, a B, B minus, but an A for effort for sure. Terrific, thanks, John. T tell us about Austin and and give us your grade. Sure, John Armbrust, founder and CEO of Austin Sheep Public Schools. Uh, we're a network of schools serving 2,300 kids pre-K through 12th grade, and we've had three graduating classes, so we're trying to support those alumni out there as well. Uh, mission is very to and through college driven. Uh, as for a grade, I think I would do nationwide B-ish, and I'd say in Texas, we're probably an A-. minus. All right, terrific. And Brett, uh, bring us home from New Jersey uh, with with both tell us a little bit uncommon and also what with, with the grade. And I like I like John's cheat. If you want to give a national grade and then a so the Homer grade for your own state, that's fine too. That's great, uh, Brett Pizer. I'm the CEO of Uncommon Schools. Uh, we serve 21,000 students in 57 schools uh, in six cities and three states in the Northeast. We have schools in Newark and Camden in New Jersey, New York City, Troy, and Rochester in New York State. And then Boston and Massachusetts, we started in 1997 with 72 students are so really proud to be serving as many students as we are at K through 12 to make sure they get to and through college. Um, in terms of a grade, I think I'll uh, probably average what everyone has been saying in A minus and A minus B plus. I started teaching uh, in a New York City public school about 30 years ago, and I'm very proud of where we are today uh, and where we used to be. When I think of what uh, the charter sector has done in terms of providing more high quality options for families than ever before, I think there are incredible proof points, not just in our own schools, but also in the peers on today's uh, uh, call, as well as across the country and more proof points than ever before. Um, I think we've continued to put pressure on the entire system that I think is critical for all of us in terms of our improvement. Um, and I think that there are scores of innovations that I think have started in charter schools that are now either uh, in charter and district schools or 
just par for the course in many schools. And I just think that charters have been a critical part of making sure that's happened over the past uh, 30 years. All right, terrific. If I was gonna ask you all though, to change your grade or, or, or sort of give a more finite grade, just on this question of sort of where are we on sort of growth of chartering and, and, and footprint of chartering, would you, would you give a different grade? And if so, why? You know, I've got to say, I love A for effort. And of course, everything is always bigger and better in Texas. So <laughs> um, we see why that grade is there. You know, I, I think charters that exist today are doing well and certainly better for their children. But the fact of the matter is, in Washington, D.C., and I suspect in your communities, too, there are thousands of kids on waiting lists for charters that can't get a seat. And I can't get above that B minus knowing that there are kids that need us and we're just not there. And so my grade is really about the availability of options for kids. And we are not moving fast enough to make that happen. The kids who serve us, how are we doing for them? Yeah, certainly in the upper grades. And I agree with you all on those higher grades, but not in terms of growth and not in terms of availability for, of seats for all the children who need us. Yeah, so things are definitely always better in Texas. You're right. <laughs> but let me defend that a little bit in terms of the conversation around growth. I think Texas, at least, has done a really good job of increasing the expectations and accountability for charter schools, but at the same time, giving us more flexibility and freedom to expand and grow if we're performing well. The big exception where we definitely are not an A here in Texas is getting your foot in the door as a new charter applicant is incredibly political, incredibly challenging, and we are not getting many new CMOs getting started here in Texas at all by comparison to other states. I also think that we need to look at the um, the local conditions in terms of growth, and we're going to have uh, a demand for growth in some areas and not in other areas. And in Los Angeles, not only do we have a politically challenging landscape for charter schools, but we have significant under-enrollment. I think as a system in Los Angeles, charters and districts, we lost over 50,000 kids in um, the last year and we're projecting to lose even more. And so really sort of understanding where the opportunities lay and where the demand is, because we also had under-enrollment in charter schools. Why? Because some of the good district schools were under-enrolled and were able to accept the kids. And, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that played out during the pandemic. And in terms of, of Los Angeles and parts of California, I would say the growth right now is very stagnant and our grade for growth would be very low. Uh, but you know that needs to be balanced with the demand. And while some schools have waiting lists, we have a lot of charter schools that are also under-enrolled. You know, I'd add on to what, uh, Anna, you just mentioned, which is, in, uh, state the obvious, which is obviously, I'm not surprised there's also been stagnant growth during the pandemic, that our motto from day one has been to grow as fast as we can, but as slow as we must. And we're in one of those stages that we feel like we must be slower, um, that we both have to address the ongoing conditions of schools today and emerging from the pandemic with an eye on the long term uh, as well. And so for us, it's been about pausing, which is where we are now. But I hope, and I think it's probably true for everyone here, is that we're taking the longer view. And so if there is short-term um, uh, uh, slowing of school growth in the, in, the, in the next couple of years, hopefully the plans in the future will uh, bring us back to the rates that we've seen earlier in charter school history. That's a great, I think, a great place to sort of jump into some issues. I'll start with the one that like Pat put on the table, though, Brett. I think there, I, I completely 
can see why. And at Bellwether, we work with a lot of uh, CMOs, including yours, on on different issues. And so you can see the you know the challenge of what you're saying about sort of pacing growth. But you've got this point that Pat laid on the table. We've got waiting lists around the country. You know, even before the pandemic, there there were long waiting lists. A lot of kids who weren't finding what they needed in existing options. So how do we balance not breaking existing CMOs, putting pressure on charters that that don't want to grow uh, to grow, but also meet this meet this need uh, that that is that is clearly out there. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the first thing um, that we've done at Uncommon is to make sure that our priorities are focused on the here and now. So clearly, whether it's during the pandemic or emerging from the pandemic, that making sure our students thrive academically, uh, mentally, socially um, is critical and first and foremost. It was our goal in the last couple of years. It's one of our, it's our primary goal next year as well. So clearly that has to be true. Um, at the same time, uh, so for example, just using Newark as an example, our plan is to start growing again around 2024 uh, when we plan on building a new pod of schools that we're excited to be able to serve the families that are on the waiting list. Um, and, uh, and so we feel like that's the way to balance it and to use this intervening time to set up the conditions that are necessary. So to honest point about where there has been an outflow of students in certain districts, well, then we can gear growth towards that. Or I think we're all facing teacher shortages or, uh, you know, in, in every one of our cities. So therefore, to gear up our recruitment team or figure out new ways so that we can recruit um, teachers to the profession in the intervening time. Uh, I think that's the way we achieve both goals. I'm curious by some of the responses that are talking about how growth is kind of slowing down because of the pandemic. I've, I've come to kind of think of it as the exact opposite. I feel like the pandemic really exposed literally across all sectors, you know, high high performing companies, organizations, schools against the lesser performing. And, and it just feels like it's been very clear that the local public schools are struggling mightily to deal with things um, with the pandemic. And some of the high performing charter schools here in, in Texas have really received unprecedented demand in the past year. So for us, we actually accelerated growth growth plans as as a response to the pandemic. So I'm just kind of intrigued that it, it cuts different ways in different regions. I think that's right. We, we grew as well. I mean, if I go back two years, we've grown over 15 percent just in that time. Uh, that isn't just in our brick and mortar. We also operated the only full time virtual schools. And so as you can expect, that also grew. Uh, in a couple of years, we will exceed our enrollment ceiling. Uh, but because growth overall has slowed down, there's some question as to whether or not we will have that ceiling lifted. Um, so the regulatory environment mm -hmm. is dampening growth um, where it can occur. So, so that's definitely a concern. But uh, for me, what, what we heard in DC and, and when I visited other communities, charters were a lot faster and more flexible in delivering what kids needed when we had to pivot to virtual, right? Um, I would say here in DC, we hear a lot about facilities and buildings, and we don't hear those same kinds of complaints about whether buildings are ready for our charter facilities. And so I think there's just an opportunity right now uh, for high-performing schools, for charters that can be flexible to meet the demand of families. So, Anna, how much of this is politics then? Like, from, from what we, like, essentially, you know, Mark Twain famously said nothing, you know, a few things in life are harder to put up with than a good example. 
And I do think, you know, not every charter is headed out of the park with with the, with the pandemic. And there's a there's a wide uh, variety. I don't need to tell you all, you know, what wide variety out there. But some schools have done really well in terms of their response mm-hmm. and provided more stability and so forth uh, for parents. Notably, like Success Academy in New York is, is hard to miss on this. Yet it's still sort of held up as, as like it's some sort of gulag or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Like how much of this is just politics and that the pandemic actually made the politics even more intense because of all the sort of, you know, frictions and, and tensions that it introduced. Yeah, um, definitely politics before the pandemic were already slowing uh, charter growth in, in Los Angeles and statewide. I think the other issue is we already had under-enrollment before the pandemic because the cost of living in Los Angeles is so high that families could just not stay here. And all of that got exacerbated with the pandemic where we had a, a lot more families that were uh, moving out. And uh, I do agree that the charters were, were much more nimble in responding to the pandemic. Many of them were on within two weeks and fully on within four weeks. Very impressive. Whereas um, districts took months to uh, get on um, uh, on a consistent um teaching um, strategy. Uh, so so there was so there were movement, right? So there were families that went from the district schools to the charter schools that had space. Uh, and then it all sort of sorted out with a number of other things. But um, I also think that, you know, in terms of the nimbleness, um, there was in Los Angeles another dynamic that played out where when the district was pushed to open schools, most of the charter schools did not open. And so parents wanted their kids to go to school in person and many charters were not providing that option. Uh, so there was a shift there too. So, you know, it was, it was politics, it was things that were already happening within the city and then lay that over some of the glitches of the pandemic. So this is something Jed talks about obviously a lot and I would encourage, I, I don't know if he's gonna like lift the, uh, lift the iron curtain and let people who are not subscribers. So I may only be speaking to subscribers in which case it's too late. But his newsletter is a lot about these questions and sort of what's going on and so forth. And if you don't subscribe to it, I would obviously urge you uh, to, to do so. It's a great, uh, it's a great read. And if you know Jed, the sort of energy that he uh, that he that he brings to this. So what are we though? So the question, and I think this is sort of implicit in a lot of what Jed has written about. You would think right now charters would be like having a, a field day. You've got a lot of parental frustration. Again, you've got waiting lists and, and pent up demand. Um, it's a fluid time. Parents, lots of parents are making a, a set of different choices, but that's not happening. So, so we can talk more about the politics. Anna started us down that road. Are there things the charter sector is doing wrong, or some, are we shooting ourselves in the foot? Like, what, what, why isn't this? You know, if an alien landed here, they would, they would think that you know the, the charters would be, um, uh, would be doing swimmingly right now in terms of in terms of growth and expansion. Pat, it's a pandemic. And unfortunately, you know, our people aren't operating outside of the pandemic. The um, the challenges of inflation and what that means to teachers and teacher pay, um, the cost of renovation of wood and steel when it comes to expanding buildings, um, the mental health, uh, you know, just of what's happening to school staff. And then COVID, Uh, you know, uh, we opened last year, we opened virtually like everyone else last year, first day of school, second day of school, we opened our in-person learning hubs. 
Uh, we opened them on every front at campus, so families that needed to come in, they could. We sort of did that. Um, our staff understood that the students we were serving needed to have a place in person, but that doesn't mean it was easy. I can count over the last year, um, four weeks into school, two staff people of Friendship passed away. The children that we serve have people passing away in their homes, and a lot of our children are staying with us from early childhood, three, four years old, through high school, so that means their family is known, and that mental exhaustion of staff is sort of there. Um, it, it is, that is tough. And so while I do think, I know that charters have been more flexible and nimble and doing it, we are also still going through the pandemic, just like everyone else. And that makes it harder to think about, do I take time away from the kids and the staff that's really going through it right now in order to innovate, to build new and then do et cetera. That, that's a real balance, right? That, that's, that's, part of the challenge. I don't know if other people are feeling that, but I feel it every day because I have to ask myself, am I really going to ask people to do more right now, knowing that they're just trying to hold it together? So, and, and also knowing that they will do more if they're asked because they are that committed. So I think that's that's part of what's happening. So it sounds like you've identified just exhaustion and, and, and fatigue, just given the, the intensity of these last two years, particularly for schools politics, both pre-existing and, and, and existing. What Brett was talking about, just in terms of being intentional and deliberate about growth, there's definitely some lessons that have been learned there that you can, there is such a thing as growing too fast. What else, John, what, what other sort of, what other factors here um, uh, are we, do, you, do you think we're not, we don't have yet have on the table? Yeah, I think part of it is just as we grow, we attract more attention from our opponents. So I think we're kind of a victim of our own success. I think there's been a direct correlation, at least here in Texas, you know, the larger our sector gets, the more market share we get in Austin, uh, the more people come after us and, and do whatever they can to, to limit growth. Um, but I, I definitely agree with Pat's point. Um, People are exhausted. It's been the hardest two years I think we've all ever experienced. And and asking anyone to do more is, is not easy. Um, and then in Texas specifically, our politics are interesting because historically we've been a pretty red state, but we're kind of shifting purple, maybe. Um, it's a debatable point. Um, but that's uh, definitely making our politics more complex with respect to charter schools. One of the other things that we've noticed, yeah, if I could add. One of the other things we've noticed is that for 25 years, we were on the same student recruitment pattern that we've seen. December, January, February, start talking with families, sign them up. With, during the pandemic and now, completely changed. And Pat sort of alluded to this, where where you're going to enroll your child uh, in the middle of a pandemic, or even, you know, uh, Andy, the way you're talking about it, that rationally you'd have families coming. January, February now, it's just not top of mind. And when we talk with our student recruitment folks, they're just saying it's not, you know, to the, first of all, it's hard to engage during a pandemic. It used to be very in-person, and obviously it's harder to do that now. But just that families aren't there to necessarily engage at that the timing they did. And so it's a very practical thing. On the flip side, in a city like Newark that has a single enrollment system, we haven't seen any change. And we actually would hope that that single enrollment system that we see in Newark, that we see in Camden, uh, where families get a single application and just rank their choices, whether it's a district school or a charter school, is something that actually goes nationwide um, because we can definitely then remove the argument that uh, somehow charter success is due to the way in which families enroll at schools. So 
let's stay on this. I want to pivot to what should we do. I think we've laid out a good set of issues and sort of go forward. Before we do that, one issue we've sort of alluded to but haven't like really dived in on is the, is this issue of teacher shortages. And somebody said a moment ago that everybody was experiencing them. There's a really interesting thing happening. You talk to school leaders and you hear about this quite a bit. The national data doesn't actually show sort of greater, you know, notably greater um, uh, attrition than, than past years. It's actually more people on payroll now than there were a few years ago, even as enrollments declined. But something is clearly happening. So, like, why aren't we picking what is happening, uh, you know, on the front lines where, where, with, with what you all are seeing and what are the implications of that? So for me, for, for us in friendship, I'm not actually seeing a teacher shortage. We have more applicants for positions than we've had in the past. Um, our schools are generally staffed. I'm seeing a substitute shortage because in the middle of a pandemic where you may have more illness that's floating or more reasons for quarantines or teachers that you have to pivot to virtual, um, it's really in the supports for teachers, so substitutes, but also in, in other supports for students, like social workers. That's where we're seeing more of the shortage. I also um, seem to have more leaders who would have told me, you know, two years ago, I want to be principal for the next 25 years, who are saying, hey, is there some other option? Because, you know, it, it's not only teachers, our, our leaders are also feeling the stress of the pandemic. Yeah. And another thing is, um, you know, people are making life choices and that's where the movement comes from. And so the teacher shortages may be, Andy, to your point, there's not less teachers, but the movement is impacting that. People want to work closer to home. People, you know, are making choices because of what they've just experienced. Um, and also when we're trying to provide more services to kids, when we're trying to bring in more programs, we need more teachers. And therefore, do we promote the teachers? Do we not bring in a new support program? I mean, those are tough choices because the workforce is just not there. And uh, the principals too, I hear a lot just how tired the leaders are and people really, you know, kind of having their fingers crossed that there's not going to be a great resignation across Los Angeles. Uh, and we just don't have the pipeline there either. And everyone is exhausted and uh, we're going through a lot right now. And the other thing too is, you know, in terms of growth for charters, there's, um, there's shortages in district schools and in charter schools. And, you know, sort of that's not even necessarily in Los Angeles, an incentive for families to put their kids in charter schools because the impacts of the pandemic are being felt across systems. Yeah, I think I'd add briefly, I think there's just a collective morale um, drop in public education. And I think it's largely due to, you know, there's a huge COVID slide and, and you have teachers who've worked with kids for years and years and were making great progress. And then a lot of those gains were totally wiped out in, uh, um, across the board. And that's frankly a little depressing to have put in all this hard work and, and people are working harder now than ever and their kids are further behind. It's, it's really frustrating. And it's not surprising whatsoever either because the job has always been hard. It was hard pre-pandemic. And then you layer on everything that's happened, including this year where the gap between what we expected the year to be and the reality of it um, has just exacerbated, um, you know, that, that, that feeling. My hope is, again, I think because all of us have been involved in public education for so long, is that there are peaks and valleys in the work that we do, and clearly we're in a valley, and that while there might be those that uh, run away from um, uh, the challenge that's in front of us, I think there'll be just as many over time that run to the challenge. 
and want to join and, and feel like the flexibility that charter schools aff uh, afford everybody will allow uh, a new group of people to come into the profession that um, are excited about addressing what feels like a very deep and worrisome uh, you know, COVID uh, set of challenges. Is that an opportunity, Brett? I mean, you know, charters, whether, whether people like charters or not, they're more agile uh, than, than, than district schools. They can try new things. They can innovate. They can, the best ones are out there innovating, fast failing. And it does seem like, as you said, like, okay, it, this was a really difficult job and a challenging job before the pandemic. The pandemic's made it worse. As John said, I think it's been very demoralizing for people to see a lot of hard work, you know, highly disrupted by, by what's happened with the pandemic. So is there an opportunity as we think about making this job more sustainable, making it more attractive, that there's a way for charters to lead the way, different kinds of workplace setups, different kinds of schedules to give teachers more life flexibility, some of the things that younger workers want? Is there a chance for, for charters to sort of get in front uh, and turn this demand that teachers have for uh, for different kinds of, of workplaces, the extensions are leaving, leaving because of that, to turn it into actually something that charters can lead on? I do. I mean, I think that we all have had to adjust and we'll all have to continue to adjust. Um, you know, when I think back of the early, you know, 25 years ago, what a charter school looked like and what it looks like today, you know, I think we've learned a tremendous number of lessons in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's the length of the day or the length of the year or the, or the expectations, you know, I think we've really uh, moderated those over time. Having said that, there was a gap before. Um, there's a gap now. Uh, we need to remediate those gaps. And I know all of us probably here believe that the best way to remediate those gaps is through the charter construct um, because of the flexibility that we're afforded as, uh, as uh, you know, in the structure of and governance of how we operate the way we do. Um, and therefore, the burden in, uh, on us is to continue to figure out how we use that flexibility to um, not just meet the academic gaps, not meet the social gaps and the mental health gaps, but also ensure that people feel like they can do this job in the short and long term. No, I think a terrific opportunity though exists in the flexibility that can be provided if virtual programs grow. I get it for, for almost, for most kids being in person is the best place for them to be. But what did we learn during the pandemic when we were virtual? There were some students who started to thrive. You know, I went into virtual classrooms. I talked to students. Um, what I heard over and over from some was, I get better feedback from my teacher. I'm not as distracted by other kids. Like, I feel like I can have a private chat with the teacher if I'm afraid to, to raise my hand on my own. And what did we hear from some teachers? I love working in this way. And so we sort of have gone back like everyone else and said, no, we've got to rush back to normal when we all know that normal wasn't working for anyone, but for everyone. And I think that there is an opportunity to embrace what we learned about serving kids during the pandemic when we were virtual. And for the groups that it works for, for the teachers that want that kind of flexibility, for the students and families that want it, we the charters can flexibly have more programs that they're delivering virtually. Um, that clearly is not for everyone, but if a teacher could work half a day in person and a half virtual, maybe that's part of the flexibility that they need. Maybe as teachers, as they say to me, it, there are some districts where the teachers are back, but the central offices are not. And believe me, teachers feel a certain way about that, right? And so 
um, I think that we have to figure out how we take what happened and grow by leaps and bounds, not step by half step by half step. Um, and I think there are some ways that we can do that. So uh, oh, go ahead, please. I agree uh, with Pat in terms of the online exploration and really looking at um, what what that can look like for families. We have a high demand in Los Angeles for for that program. I mean, we went from you know a couple of thousand kids uh, being an online program to now it's almost twenty thousand kids across Los Angeles, and families are very satisfied. Over sixty five percent of them want to continue in a program like that. So that that's also a shift and one that needs to be recognized and an opportunity for for charters to lead in that space. Um, I also think that it's an opportunity to uh, reimagine imagine teaching and learning and, you know, what the school day and the school building looks like and how can we leverage the tools that we've used over the pandemic and um, through virtual um, school and apply them and integrate them and really find ways to support teachers. And I think this is the time to innovate and be creative and take bold risks in terms of how to support our current teachers and how to create an environment where we where others want to come and uh, and become teachers and 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 you know get into that pipeline that right now is very limited, at least in Los Angeles and in California. Yeah, I, I love that answer about using this as an opportunity to kind of rethink things. I think it's obviously a crisis and, and it's a sin to waste a good crisis. This is a perfect opportunity to rethink everything. And then um, you can implement change throughout this process because people know we're kind of starting over in, in some ways. And it's actually a really exciting time if you're put the optimistic hat on and say, hey, what can we what can we do different and what what what, what can, can we make better, too? So let's get down to a little bit, though, of some specifics around what's happening. I think that that's terrific, but it's hard to grow if you can't grow. And, and recently, it seems like in Texas, John, where you are, it's gotten really hard to grow and expand. Uh, and I was hoping you would talk about that. And then, Brett, there was just, you know, a whole set of charter announcements in New Jersey that seemed, you know, highly political and seemed uh, more to do with politics than, than school results. And like, and I want to talk about that. Is that a harbinger of, of, of things to come or sort of a one-off of, of New Jersey politics? So start with you, John. Like, talk about Texas and the environment down there. It seems like it, it is, it seems like, you know, there, there was a push. And those of us who were doing this for a while, there was a lot of concern about charter quality, much of it very warranted. And there's been a lot of work to improve the sector. If you look at a place like D.C., for instance, where Pat is, like, there's been just enormous improvement in the sector there and, and, and through a you know, good performance framework and so forth. Um, but if we sort of, are we are we risking the point of too much of a good thing uh, where it's getting too hard or, you know, how do you handicap what's happening in Texas for us? Yeah, so as context, uh, the way you get authorized in Texas is through the State Board of Education and TEA, kind of a combined process. So we're all, for the most part, state authorized charter schools. And it used to be a pretty straightforward process, but it's gotten heavily politicized and very difficult. Um, so in the state of Texas, uh, we got three new charter schools approved, um, which is crazy. There's smaller cities in, in different states that have more than that approved in the same time frame. So it's just really, really political. Um, there's tons of good, high-quality applications, but uh, they tend to die um, purely for political reasons. That said, if you are a high-performing Charter school expanding is still, I would say, pretty easy, all things considered, although that is getting tighter as well. TEA has definitely made it more difficult, uh, but still, I'd say, pretty friendly, all things considered. 
And why is that? I mean, that certainly runs counter to the sort of national narrative about Texas. Um, why is so TEA, I feel like, has um, just seen a few examples of charter schools that have struggled or perhaps made some mistakes. And I feel like that has heightened awareness on kind of oversight. And frankly, I think they've overreacted in, in some cases on new policy and procedure and rulemaking uh, in the amendment process. But I do think uh, they are reacting, again, from a very political place uh, where they're getting pressure saying, hey, like, you know, you need to really um, keep an eye on these things. It's uh, And people are coming up with really um, interesting stories that sometimes aren't true about charter schools. And so it just uh, adds the questions and, and the oversight, which makes it a little harder from a regulatory standpoint. So, Brett, what about New Jersey? It, it, again, you guys just had a round of, of, um, uh, of decisions around uh, renewal and growth. And it, it, I, I, can't, I don't have a good Sopranos joke here or something, but it just seemed, it seemed, very, it seemed very political. What's going on? Well, I mean, I think that we all know that, um, you know, politics plays a role in the history and development of charter schools. It's been true, you know, since the first one opened and it's true today. It matters what the superintendent thinks. It matters what the mayor thinks. It matters what the governor thinks. And so we're well aware of that. And, you know, sometimes the conditions are favorable and sometimes they're less favorable. And again, I think that, you know, when, you know, we feel like we are, and I know everyone on the call too, around our marathoners in this work, you know, it's good to take the long view about, you know, where things are. And so they're going to definitely be more challenging times. Um, I think it all stems from, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're big fans of, when Paymon Ruhanifard was the superintendent of Camden, um, you know, he his story and what he did in Camden, you know, we feel like should be national news all the time. Uh, and I think he took the tack that uh, I just want to make sure that every child in Camden has a rigorous and joyful, uh, a meaningful, purposeful, authentic education. And I'm not going to get caught up in whether it is a district school or a charter school or in the case um, that Paymon brought to Camden, it's a Renaissance school, which is a slightly, you know, a, 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 a slight twist on a charter, a charter school. Um, and so I, I say all that to say is that, um, you know, if you believe that all students are public school students, regardless of their governance structure, um, then you take one approach. And if you somehow believe it's either or, then you take a different approach. And I just feel like we fundamentally, you know, all the folks, so I think nearly everybody who's in a charter school at some point was in a, was a district educator. Um, and uh, so we feel like we have the same mission. We're just trying it through a different context. And so I think that's what sometimes, you know, at play. Um, and certainly, obviously, what's also at play is those that still fall victim to the myths of charters around you, you have to pay to get into the school, that we choose the students. Um, and I think that we're still struggling over, after many, many years answering those very fundamental and uh, basic questions. And I wish there was a magic answer to, uh, to, to, to counter all of those uh, incorrect notions. Do you all worry that the opposite could also happen? We could be moving into a period of sort of intense politicalization of school choice, intense association of school choice as more of a conservative issue. So one scenario is later this year, the Supreme Court will, uh, uh, in, a, in a decision about these Blaine uh, amendments and state constitutions, the Supreme Court makes it much easier uh, for uh, public money to flow into religious schools. So you see an uptick in religious charters. You know, the governor of Tennessee has, has talked about having Hillsdale come down, a conservative college in Michigan. You've got, you know, this Charlie Kirk University, whatever the hell happened with that. 
But there's just a lot of energy there. At, at the same time, the Democrats have become more resistant to charters. It's, 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 it's hard to miss because of politics inside that party. Is there a chance of this issue at the very time we're talking about these things? And, and, and you know, Brett, you're talking about the ebbs and flows, but this is a question to, to all of you, particularly Anna, given the politics that, that you work on. Is there a chance this issue becomes like more politicized and becomes more associated with one particular ideology rather than what it's traditionally been, which is, you know, like you get you get all comers here? Yes, that's interesting. And, you know, we'll see what um, happens with the, with the ruling. I would say that this is an interesting time. And what we have been trying to do here in Los Angeles is, is really push to find the common ground uh, of what our kids and families need and find ways to bring charters and, and district schools and families to really focus on what that common ground is. So we're really pushing on the narrative through storytelling, through earned media, uh, through a number of channels to sort of push back on that toxic uh, narrative that existed pre-pandemic. His charters were really being hit hard, but like, where is the opportunity right now, and how do we get through it? And you know, where where can we sort of um, exercise that muscle to grow and come out of the pandemic in a different place? I don't know what the ruling is going to do to it. You know, just in terms of do we get another uh, you know sort of uh, group of interested parties that are part of the political scene, which I would imagine would be the religious schools because they would benefit from it. Um, so that's to be seen. But in terms of like just the opportunity for growth, I think really looking at how do we get through this in a way where that narrative is not this or that, but that the narrative is really focused on good public schools. Andy, if I, I was just thinking your question reminds me of what John said earlier, that in the early days, um, charter schools didn't feel as political as they do now. And I don't think it's something changed necessarily, as I just think that we're a larger part of the educational fabric than ever before. You know, you know better than me, I think some of the percentages in some of the cities, you know, in Newark, you know, it, you know, 30 to 35 percent of students are in charter schools. In New York City, it's about 10 percent. And so when we were much smaller, didn't seem as uh, it didn't seem to uh, cause as much consternation. Now I think we're much larger, and I think that we're an important part of that uh, piece of things. And so I think that's so. I, so while we might live in a more politicized time, while uh, the Blaine decision uh, might be part of that, I think it's more related to the fact that we play such an outsized role in so many places. And I would probably add, as I mentioned earlier, is that you know when you go visit uh, schools around the country that have some of the results that they do, um, you know, I think that while we would want to celebrate it, and while I think all of us open our doors to share what we've learned with others, learn from others, try to get better at what we're doing, um, you know, I have to imagine that can be a threat to others in terms of uh, how we're doing it and what we're doing. And, you know, which again, at the end of the day, is a good thing for our students and families. It's a funny thing. I often say, you know, I don't understand politics. I run schools. Uh, but more and more, it seems like the ability to run schools and to have good schools means you've got to weigh in on the politics. And, uh, you know, you're right, Brett, you know, in D.C., it's 45, 46 percent of kids in public schools are in public charters. And, 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 and I've often thought, isn't that enough for the politicians to understand just how important our schools are to the fabric of education, um, at least where we are locally? And, 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 and 
that's true in other places um, across the country, but it's not. And I think we've got to figure out how to have people feel the weight of our parents, that our parents, that our families are more important than the politics. So vote parents, vote, and let it be felt at the ballot box so that the options that you need aren't taken away. But, but yes, it is more political than ever. I turned to someone the other day and I said, when did we get to be, you know, the anti, like the, the thing that people are fighting against? And I hadn't thought about now that we're a larger part of the fabric, there's just so much more attention. But we are necessary. And I think we've got to become much more adept at the politics ourselves, that it isn't just about running schools, it's about having the regulatory environment that supports schools, that doesn't restrict our growth, that allows us to, to deliver what we need to for families. And, and to do that, we've got to start to be part of the politics. In my experience, every time a school leader tells you, I don't do politics, I just I'm a school leader, it turns out they're actually really good at politics. That's like almost <laughs> like, like, like an iron law that you just pat uh, that you just you just uh, you just illustrated right there. Let me stay with you just for a sec, Pat, and follow up because it, it, it may well be. I think Brett's point's like indisputable. As you have a bigger footprint, it displaces more, creates disruption. But there may be like some sort of a tipping point, right? Because like in D.C. now, where it's essentially 50-50 um, with uh, with with kids in the public system, you know, or in charters or, or traditional district schools, like. There does seem to be people are starting to figure out how do we solve these problems, you know, system wide. What does the education sector here need to look like? You hear that language, um, uh, you know, three sector solution. So is there a point where it just charges become so ingrained that some of these questions start to take care of themselves because everybody has to be rolling in the same direction? You know, D.C. pre-pandemic was growing so much that I think there was less of an emphasis on whether or not, you know, charters were growing faster than the district. There was a start of a conversation around what is the educational landscape need to look like, that we don't necessarily need more general charters, but we need language immersion or we need STEM or CTE. And how do we create um, an environment where families have lots of different kinds of choices? And so I think there is an interest here in, in figuring out whether or not growth is in innovation, innovative models, is it in uh, particular wards where families are growing? Uh, so that has been a part of the conversation. I would still say that when we look at charters in the district that have really significant waiting lists, when we see families that want more, of the, as an example, a language immersion option or a STEM option or more virtual school, there's still space for more charters because we can deliver those schools faster. And what are we gonna to say to a parent of a three, four or five year old? Wait 10, 15 years for us to figure out if we're gonna put a traditional public school here or if we're gonna change the curriculum of that school. You can authorize a charter today. The expectation is that within two years, they will be open, right? 18 months to two years. So I, I think that it's not a conversation that's going to go away, but we've got an opportunity to influence what happens next. Yeah. And to this parent point, I do think parents intuitively get that their kid's only going to be in third grade once or fourth. They get the urgency. And then you talk to parents, you'll even hear parents who, who themselves, for example, have worked in the system. And so they're like, I'm very reluctant to do this, but there's always the but. And then it's, you know, because my, you know my son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter, I can't wait. Uh, it's too, it's too important. 
Um, and so I think politically there's something there in terms of those parents and that's even become more activated uh, after the last few years. Before we move off of this to other sort of, I want to talk a little bit more about some go forward stuff, but John, any other lessons you operate sort of ascent? I, you know, I may get this wrong, so correct me, but it seems like a you know blue city in a red state with, you know, a sort of interesting set of politics and a, a city that's like very high growth tech companies and stuff are going. There's a lot going on. Any other like, you know, I, I, think, I think, you know, Anna talked about this California context with, you know, parents there and these narratives. You operate in a, in a slightly different environment. Any other sort of thoughts or advice on, you know, or things you're wondering about with sort of. How do you navigate this based on your experience? Yeah, I mean, given that Texas has a long history of being more red and Republican, I feel like charter schools have fallen under the like the broader school choice movement, which has included efforts to do vouchers here and, and have money go to religious schools. I think the progress I want to see we make in our sector is make it more of an education equity issue over time, because I feel like that really is a bipartisan mindset. And to Pat's point, real that's putting parents and kids first. And politics haven't yet done that consistently. And I think we as a movement can can get better at that and really just framing it as what do parents and kids need now, um, especially in, in districts where there's a lot of underperforming schools. Yeah. And I want to jump in yeah, before we move on. Um, and just, you know, this might be controversial, but I think one of the things that we should really think about is that um, as a movement and we've had, you know, decades of doing really great work and the opportunity to continue to do great work, but charters are not going to be the solutions for districts like LAUSD. And like what role can charters play to improve public education as a whole, not just for the kids that are in charter schools, but for the kids that are in waiting lists that are not going to get in for five or 10 years for the kids whose parents don't even know about the option for charter schools. Like where where are we as a movement sort of pushing in and playing that role of like how do we serve and improve public education as a whole and not just, you know, focus on the 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 piece that charters can do but also what can charters and this charter movement do for the broader improvement of public education for all kids especially black and brown kids living in poverty so that's actually was a perfect uh interjection on because that's kind of what i wanted to ask about how do we though I, that energy of making sure and, and a few of you in different ways have talked about this about making sure all kids are going to be served well how do we make sure though traditionally if you look historically those lessons always end up uh being applied in sort of the light version you know so it's it's it it, it it's certain aspects but with all the sharp edges taken off and that happens again and again and that's sort of how we put whole, whole books and, and careers have been written studying this that's how that's how change sort of doesn't happen in our sector so how do we if, if you haven't like the new superintendent in, in la is talking about he wants to expand magnets and so forth elsewhere People are talking about in-district choice and, you know, autonomous district schools are popular in places like Texas. Like, how do we make sure that these things are, are actually meaningful and aren't don't just become a way to sort of dilute what makes good charters effective and so don't end up actually moving the needle for kids? That don't dilute effective charters, but also bring in some of those practices into some of the in-district school choices. And that's one of the things that I'm excited about uh, that the new superintendent brings is, you know, a belief in uh, an in-district portfolio of options for families, including charter schools, and looking at what that could look like. But um, in terms of just... Um, you know, the, going back to the point that we we can't be we can't see ourselves as the solution 
that it's a charter thing. We have to really look at how can we push, and I'll give you guys an example. So because of great public schools now, we brought Relay to Los Angeles and we intentionally put 50% charter uh, leaders and 50% district leaders so that they can start talking about, you know, their learning, their, their bright spots, their successes, and hopefully start to foster that collaboration. And what are some of our other charter leaders doing to sort of like engage more in a geographic um, way to serve the families that are both attending district schools and charter schools and therefore applying that pressure of more and, and better and, you know, engaging politically as well, not just to continue to support the growth and development of charter schools, but also stand behind demanding better for all kids within the district. I like that. Yeah, but go, I like that. But like, I want to hear, so, and, and Brett, you may take it this direction. Like, I want to be real. I mean, look, at Bellwether, we work with this school districts. We work with charter schools. We're very agnostic. We think, you know, that you, excellence can be found everywhere and kids everywhere deserve an excellent education. But, and there's always a but, like when we've done this traditionally, like the teachers union said, we're going to operate charter schools and they can operate under the same things that districts do and they'll be great. They weren't great. Like, and, and, you know, one famous incident with, with a United Federation of Teachers school that Randy Weingarten started got shut down. Um, uh, this, and this has happened elsewhere. It's happened in, in, in California as well with other sort of similar examples. Like, so how do we make sure that the lessons aren't diluted, that the things we've learned some things about charters, the good, good charter schools are not sort of a randomly occurring phenomena. Like there's things that they do, um, that have been codified in places like Relay are trying to teach that there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there, but they're not a random happening. And so how do we like make sure that districts embracing this doesn't just end up being sort of the slow erosion. I think, is Brett, is that where you were going? Well, I, I was actually, maybe I'd turn it and say, I don't know if it's a slow erosion. Actually, I was about to say, maybe it's also just, the, it's the slow progress. And maybe that obviously, that is actually more of how we should look at it. You know, first of all, I think that, you know, what the study of education and how we talk about classrooms and teachers and school practices, I think is more sophisticated and better today than it was pre-charter. I just think that the, the you know, how how um, specific we get in terms of, you know, when I take, a, so I'll, 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 I'll take an example. So Doug Lamov is part of Uncommon Schools, wrote Teach Like a Champion a little while back, you know, 63 best, uh, you know, uh, great techniques that charter school use. Um, uh, oh, sorry, the, the 63 techniques that great classrooms use. And I just think that kind of conversation, I don't think was happening uh, 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 pre-charter. And so I think that whether it's, it, it, it's that example or, you know, we have a number of other, I feel like thought leaders at Uncommon Schools who are focused on that. Um, you know, I think that's, that, 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 that part's important. I'll add one more thing, which is, you know, at Uncommon Schools, we've got, you know, four overarching goals, achieve, expand, impact, and thrive. And so the impact one is, you know, sharing our work with others. And so we do have partnerships with uh, where we're training New York City, Newark, and Camden district and leaders when we when we moved remote and we put all of our curriculum online for our parents, it ended up being downloaded a million times from sixty nine different countries, and so it's you know it's 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 one small thing, but I just think that despite all the noise up here, I, I think that you know or Anna's example where it's half district and half charter, I just think that's slow that it's slow and good progress. And a final thing is I'm reminded about you know, uh, former President Obama, when he said that we're all part of a long-running narrative and we're just trying to get our, our paragraph right. And that's what I think we're doing as part of that 
charter movement is getting that paragraph right. I think, you know, just to add on to what Brett has said, in some ways, great schools being great provides what other schools need, right? And so do what you do best, and I can learn from your lessons. Uh, but putting the onus on charter schools to improve other schools means we're going to turn away from what we're doing. We're going to create new things. And, and maybe that's not really what's best. I don't think it's charters that should be doing that work. I think that foundations need to convene great schools, right, regardless of where they are, and help them to share lessons with each other and with others. I think that um, elected officials can, you know, ask the questions, what's happening well, regardless of the sector. Um, you know, I would say I think that that is not necessarily the work of charters. We can certainly be open to sharing, but it's the work of other people to help us to make sure that those lessons get out there. I also think that we've got to be realistic. There are people that don't want the great lessons from charter to go forth. They want it to be public versus public charter. They want it to be a fight. They want people to, to, to make a choice. And so there's no reason to magnify the good. We're also just in a world where no one's talking about you unless it's something that's negative, right? So, you know, and, 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 and I would hope people would start to think about what that does when you're eroding the confidence of parents in schools, of teachers, you know, in their employment. Um, but no one really wants to talk about the good things because it's not politically convenient and it doesn't move the agenda that's against. That said, you know, I'm sitting um, in a school building today. I can look across at a traditional public school. You want to know where the collaboration is happening? It's, it's at the school level, right? That school across the street, which is a high school, sends kids over here to do reading and to partner and to tutor the elementary kids that are here, right? And we give them access to our field. And like you, you see a lot of that collaboration. During the pandemic, the number of calls that I was on that was just schools without regard to how they were governed about testing. Can I get access to masks? Can we buy these things together? Like that worked. And I've got relationships now that will help me to improve and that I hope helps others to improve, right? Um, and, and so I think that when the rubber hits the road, that, that school people, I'm talking about site level people understand that, that they need the schools that are across from them and in their community, and they will work together for improvement. But on a larger scale, I think we need the foundations to step up. I think we need the politicians to step up. And I think we need people to stop with trying to pit us against each other as sectors. So I'm going to come back on the foundation piece in a sec. John, I saw you nodding your head. You want to jump in? Yeah, I just couldn't agree more that good collaboration tends to happen on the very local level, principal to principal or teacher to teacher. And I think the reason, the big reason why I gave us a, a B and not an A at the top of the show is we just haven't figured out the scale up way to get our practices fully integrated into public, traditional public schools. Um, I mean, there's certainly some examples here and there, but it's not happened at the rate that, that we promised when charter schools got started. We were supposed to incubate innovative ideas and, and bring them back to the district. And, and that's just not happening as much as, as we promised uh, 20 years ago. So before we get, I want to I want to get to the foundation piece. Before we get there, just let's, I, I just want to put a pin in it. So I've heard some different visions on it, on sort of what growth looks like. Growth looks like expanding practices into other parts of the education sector and lessons. Growth looks like opening new schools like, are there other aspects of growth? You know, I mean, obviously, growth looks like building political support and organizing parents. That was that was said loud and clear, which you know, again, is something Jed uh, talks talks a lot about. 
um, in, in his writing uh, here at, at, at Charter Folk. And again, at least, at least everybody on this call are all Charter Folk or folk who like charters or something. Um, uh, so, you know, th that, that's the third issue, issue of, of parents. Are there any other areas of growth that, we, that you guys think are important? You think about this that we, that we haven't spoken to that you think are important? Well, the one thing here in Los Angeles, I don't know how it is in, in other parts, but, um, you know, we have as many low performing schools as we have outstanding schools. And that this is just an opportunity for growth on that end of like, how do we, you know, sort of have some support or accountability to ensure that it's a healthy, thriving ecosystem for the for charter schools in Los Angeles, where we can truly say that charter status means one step up in quality. And right now that's sort of hit or miss right here. And that needs to be elevated. I also think that we could do um, a lot more with engaging families and engaging with communities and building those on the ground relationships right now. There's plenty of opportunities all around just because of uh, the incredible level of need and the incredible uh, trauma that our kids and families have experienced to partner with community-based organizations to start pushing on those uh, um tables that wouldn't come together and really forge those relationships. And I think that's an important area of growth, particularly in terms of coming out of the pandemic and in a better, like not elected political place, but socially political place with people on the ground that are living the experience with the kids and families in the schools. So my closing question for you as we move towards the end is we talked about foundations and I don't think it's a secret when there's philanthropic dollars behind charter schooling, charter schooling tends to thrive both in terms of quality and in terms of, of growth and expansion. And when there's less energy, people, people struggle. So if you were in an elevator, you know, and you happen to be in an elevator and, you know, Bill Gates or Mackenzie Scott or somebody, you know, uh, Lorraine uh, Powell Jobs or somebody's there. Like, what would you say to them if you just had a minute on, like, where you think philanthropic capital should be deployed with regard to chartering right now? And I kind of want to do this a lightning round. We'll, we'll go around. So we'll start. Um, uh, let's start with you, John. Yeah, I think I would put the money in supporting actual growth of schools and adding seats. And then the other part of the money, I would invest in advocacy because uh, I think that's such a critical piece of, of everything that we do. Patricia? It would absolutely be to, to a take on John the advocacy to get more seats, more quality seats. Brett, uh, echo what John said. I would add on is that uh, facilities were a challenge for charter schools in 1997. They're still a huge challenge for uh, um, charter growth today. And so, I not only would add on expansion, advocacy, and a specific focus on uh, helping with facilities. Terrific. Anna? Advocacy for sure. And I think one of the other things that um, would be important would be communications, really shifting the narrative and uh, and investing in a strategy to really focus on great schools and push away from the binary context of charter and district schools. All right. Terrific. You guys were really good. Often when you ask for the elevator pitch, you come away thinking that we only hold these meetings in like skyscrapers. Um, those were like very, uh, those are very admirable, admirably pithy uh, elevator pitches. Thank you for that. And thank you more generally uh, for just a terrific discussion. I want to thank all of you for taking time out of your day. I know you all are incredibly busy, so taking time uh, to do this. And thank Jed for, for 
the work he does overall to sort of spark these conversations, but particularly for starting a set of conversations around this with this webinar uh, and bringing us all together. So thank you.